you have a Bible, please take it and go to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. We said in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about the fact that it's the time of year for New Year's resolutions. Um, I think there's various kinds of resolutions. Some of them are, are things that um, we do that we know we shouldn't do, um, habits that we want to stop. Um, I need to not watch so much TV. I need to not drink so much coffee. I need to not eat so much food, different things like that. Then there are things that we know we should do, but we don't do them, and so we resolve that we're going to change. So I need to floss more. I need to drink more coffee. I need to, you know, get the oil changed on my car, actually, when it says to. I need to exercise or eat better, or all these different things. Something like maybe we, I need to pray more. Prayer is, I think, one of the topics in the Christian life that makes virtually everyone say, man, I need to grow in that. <laughs> man, I don't do that enough. I am not a person of prayer like I should be. Even someone who is, is, is solid in prayer, still, when we talk about prayer, they say, I need to grow in this. We all believe in prayer, I assume. But very few of us are consistently practicing prayer in our lives. We all want to grow. We all want to be men and women of prayer. But that desire is sometimes just in our heads or it's in our hearts and it doesn't overflow in in action. If we do pray, we're often very distracted when we pray or we're easily discouraged or we drift off into other tasks Or we start strong seeking after God and then we we quickly kind of fade in our zeal. Um, We neglect to persist in prayer. We ask God to act in a certain way one time and then He doesn't and so we sort of give up. We're inconsistent. We find that we pray only when there are deep crises in our lives. I feel compelled to linger on prayer for a few weeks, so this week and then the next three, so four weeks, because I know I need to grow in this discipline. If any of that rings true in your life, it's because it rings true in my own life, because prayer is is just a hard discipline. I want to live a life of prayer. So please know over these next four weeks, I'm not saying you need to do all this. I'm saying we need to do all this together. so we're starting this four-week series, and I find it um, such a blessing. You know, I try to plan things out, but at the same time, we're just sort of going through Luke and how kind of God that I said, hey, you know, I think at the beginning of the year, let's talk about prayer, and where we have landed is Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, which is this wonderful parable on persisting in prayer. I can think of no better place to, to start, because this is just very clear, very to the point. Uh, Luke tells us right at the beginning in verse 1 why this parable is here and what the purpose is. Jesus told them a parable to the effect for the purpose that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. There it is. That's God's message for us this morning. Here it is. Pray always and don't lose heart. Pray always and don't lose heart. So that's it, right? That's all we got to say. I mean, Jesus tells us to pray always and to not lose heart, so we're all going to go home and we're going to do that, right? No, it's, it doesn't happen that way, does it? Easier said than done. So Jesus gives us a parable. And the purpose of the parable is, in, is to instruct us, to, to encourage us as to why we should pray always and not lose heart. That's the purpose of the parable. 
So as we think about prayer this week and then in the coming weeks, I, I want to share something that, that has slowly been changing the way I think about prayer. It's nothing probably very new or, or deeply profound, but it's just this simple thought that prayer is an act of faith. Prayer is an act of faith. So we're going to think of that's going to be sort of an overriding theme for four weeks. This morning it's pray always and don't lose heart. But underneath that, this idea that prayer is an act of faith. Prayer is the is the overflow of of believing certain things about who God is and, and how He works. And the parable that Jesus is going to use to support this this encouragement to to pray always and to not lose heart is it's going to say something about who God is. It's going to call us to faith in God. The parable is calling us to believe, to have faith in the character of God such that we are spurred on to faith and a faith that overflows in prayer. In fact, next Sunday, my hope is that we're just going to pause and think about prayer as an act of faith. What are some things about God that we should believe when we step into prayer? And how would that change how we think about God? And how does wrongly thinking about God keep us from praying or cause us to pray wrongly? I think everything about God, His character, has, is relevant to how we pray. But we want to think about some specifics. And this morning, Jesus is going to give us some specific things about who God is that let us know how we should pray and why we should persist and be consistent in prayer. So let's read the passage. Luke 18, I'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 8. And He, Jesus, told them, probably specifically the, the disciples, He told them a parable. To the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So again, the, the encouragement of this passage is, is meant to cause us to pray always and not lose heart. So there's a do, right? Pray always. And then there's this don't. Don't lose heart. And, and these things sort of play off each other, don't they? So if you lose heart, you're not going to continue to pray. And if you're continuing to pray, it's because you haven't lost heart. So they, they, it's the positive and the negative. When you think about that first idea about Praying always. I think my, most of our minds probably go to 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, pray without ceasing. Never to stop praying. Our lives to be, are to be in constant communion with God. Prayer should be like breathing. It's just what we do all day long. And surely there are times in our day and in our life where we need to have focused prayer and each day should have some sort of routine of prayer. But we should also continually be offering up thanksgiving and praise and confession and request to God every day, all day long. There can and there should be this steady pouring out of our hearts to God from the moment we rise to the moment we lay our head on the pillow. 
Pray always. And don't lose heart, he says. We're not to be discouraged in prayer. We're not to give up. This idea of not losing heart, it shows up elsewhere in Scripture, the same word. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13 and Galatians 6.9, it talks about that we are not, we're not to grow weary in doing good. And then in 2 Corinthians 4.1 and 16, Paul talks about not losing heart in ministry. So this idea that there are good things that we're supposed to do that we can just sort of get discouraged in, and prayer is, is one of them. I mean, I get tired of washing the dishes because they're always around. Have you noticed this? They just sort of are breeding all the time. They're there. There's always dishes they always need done. But if I stop doing them, there are consequences to not doing them. Um, I woke up yesterday. I was woke up early and I was going to go for a run. And I told my wife, I don't want to go for a run. <laughs> I want to stay in bed because this feels nice. Um, and so I couldn't see at the moment the benefit. And so I was discouraged. I didn't want to do it. And I did it. I went out and ran. And if, you know, when you're done, you'd say, oh, that was good. I'm so glad I did that. I did that with the dishes, too. I'm so glad these are done and we don't have to worry about them in the morning. But why would we lose heart in prayer? Why, why would we get discouraged? Ask yourself that question. Why do I get discouraged in prayer? Why do I lose heart? Why do, why do I slowly fade in praying? Andrew and I talked about that a little bit this week. And I think primarily the reason we lose heart in praying is because we don't see results. We don't see what we are asking for. We don't see the point. That's with anything. Why do people stop exercising? Because there's no change. (laughs) I've been doing this forever and I don't see any change. Why do uh, people stop showing kindness to others? Well, because every time I show kindness, something bad happens to me. It's never returned. Why do people grow weary in ministry like Paul talks about? Because nothing seems to ever change. Why do people grow tired of praying? Because we feel like we don't see results. We feel like we're wasting our time and our breath. Why am I doing this? In the context of chapter 17, you remember chapter 17 is about the apparent delay of the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us not to lose heart, even though it appears like he is delaying in coming. Like he is delaying in bringing his his justice. So God's apparent slowness in setting up the kingdom fully may be discouraging to us and discourage us from from praying. We we, we feel as if we've prayed for a long, long time. And nothing is happening. We keep saying, Lord, let your kingdom come. And the kingdom isn't coming. So I think if, if that's what we are discouraged by, we're discouraged by the lack of results, then we have to be spurred on to praying by something more than results. That can't be the only thing that motivates us. Is Well, I want to see answers to prayer, and that's what's going to keep me going in prayer. But what if there are not answers? There's got to be something else that's spurring us on, that's causing us to continue to persist in prayer. There's to be a motivation to keep on praying even when we see nothing change. And this is again where I think this idea that prayer is an act of faith is so helpful. Prayer has to be fueled by faith. Not not faith in prayer itself, but faith in the God to whom we are praying, right? Because prayer is only as powerful as the person that we are talking to. You can ask people for certain things, but they may have no power to do it for you. You can ask me for money, lots of money. I have no power to give it to you. But we can ask God for things, and God has the power to do it. So prayer is is as powerful as God is. And so what we believe about who God is will, will keep us praying and will keep us from losing heart.
And Jesus here tells us this parable to tell us something about who God is and why we should keep praying and not lose heart. And it's going to be rooted in what we believe about who God is. So, the parable begins in verse 2, and we're introduced to a judge. A judge in, in a city, a hypothetical city. He's the man who's in charge of handling matters of, of justice in this place. He's to determine what is, what is right and what is wrong and the punishment that should, should go out. And we're told two things about his character. That he didn't fear God is number one. And number two, that he did not respect people. <laughs> Great guy, right? This seems to have been a motto of sorts. He even says it of himself in verse 4. I don't fear God. I don't respect people. So if you met this guy at a party, you'd introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm so-and-so. And you'd say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Judge. And he'd say, there's two things you need to know about me. Number one, I don't fear God. I have no respect for God. He doesn't enter into my mind when I make any decisions. I don't worry about how he might reward or punish me. I have no regard for God. Second thing that you need to know about me is I don't have any particular regard for people. I don't think one person is better than another person. In fact, I really don't like people at all other than myself. I respect me. I have no respect for anyone else, and I don't care about anyone else. So that's my motto. I don't fear God. I don't respect man. And I hate puppies, too. You know? I mean, this guy's just ruthless. He's, he's, he's just a nasty guy. He's unjust. He's unfearing. He's unrespecting. That's the judge. And then we meet the widow. Second character, the only other character, verse 3. She's in the same city. A widow, someone whose, whose husband had died. We might assume she's older, but the text doesn't really say. Whatever her age, she is alone in the world. The reason that Jesus chooses a widow for this parable as, as the character in the story is, is that she illustrates someone with, with great need and few resources. <laughs> She has great need and she has few resources. Leon Morris in his commentary says this, The widow was almost a symbol of helplessness. She was in no position to bribe the judge, and she had no protector to, to pressure him, to put pressure on him. She was armed with nothing but the fact that right was evidently on her side and her own persistence. And the widow is who we're supposed to relate to in this parable, okay? That we are victims of injustice, we are victims of evil. We are living in a world that is filled with injustice, injustice, and we are, for all intents and purposes, utterly helpless to do anything about it on our own. We don't have the money. We don't have the influence or the position or the power to bring about justice. The only thing we have going for us is that we understand right and wrong, and we, we, we assume that we're on the side of justice, and also, hopefully, that we have some sort of persistence. There's some sort of determination or doggedness or stubbornness or dedication. That's all we have going for us. We can imagine based on the, the, the text here that the widow is continually coming to this unjust judge and asking for justice. She is totally at this guy's mercy. She can't do anything else. She has no other option. The only option she has is to simply come to this guy over and over and over and over and over and over again with the hope that he will eventually give her justice over her enemy. That's all she has going. She, she's like a young child who wants a snack. You know, children know how to persist and insist on their desires. Jesus tells us elsewhere that we're supposed to pray like children. That's a unique way for Jesus to tell us how to pray. 
Because when it comes to asking for things, as far as, you know, the socially acceptable ways, children are the worst. No offense, kids. I love you all. But, but you know, it's the over and over and over. I want this. 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 And they ask until finally you say, fine, you can have it. <laughs> I did that this week. I'll be totally honest with you. <laughs> they, they ask until they get what they want. And that's what this widow does. She just says, I want justice. I want justice. I want justice. I want justice. And we're told that she slowly wears this judge down. He's, he, he doesn't change at all who he is at the court, does he? He says, I still don't fear God, and I have no respect for people. But this woman is not going to stop. She's beating me down day after day. Fine, I'm just going to give her what she wants. The idea there of this beating down, it, it's actually a boxing term. It has to do with getting a black eye. She, he says, this woman's giving me a black eye. She just keeps punching me until I do what she wants. So fine. He cries, uncle. It's like that game Mercy. Did you ever play that when you were in grade school where you hold hands and you try to make the other person scream mercy? And you can imagine this judge, as it were, with his fingers bent backwards and his arms twisted. And he says, fine, you win. I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> this, this widow, she had no other power, nothing else, except this dogged determination to keep coming back. And then in verse 6, the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. What does the unrighteous judge say? He says that this woman has beat me down until I gave her what she wanted. So, how do we apply this then? How specifically is this an encouragement to pray always and to not lose heart? Is, is the point... <laughs> is the point that we're supposed to beat down the door of heaven and then God is eventually going to relent. That we can somehow sort of strong arm God into listening to us. That if we keep praying and, and begging that God will eventually get totally annoyed with us and give us what we want just to keep us quiet. No, that is not the point. The point, in fact, is that God is not like this judge at all. That he is the, the complete opposite of this judge. So the, the parable is meant to say, listen, if this slimy, unjust, puppy-hating judge <laughs> will bring justice to this widow, then how much more will God give you justice? He, he's so much greater than this judge. And if we cry out to him, will not God give us justice? If this guy relents in the end, then how much more can we trust that God, even though things look bleak, even though it looks like He is not answering, that, that He will answer us, and if nothing else, that he is, he is coming again and He will bring justice in the world, how much more should we be able to trust God? The, the reason many of us may not pray is because we're applying this parable wrong, and we think that God is like this unjust judge. That's how we view God when we come to Him in prayer. We think that He is annoyed with us. We think that he would, he, would, he would rather not give us the time of day. We think about God wrongly. And so we pray wrongly. Or we don't pray at all. And so the point of this, again, is, is that prayer is an act of faith, so we have to believe something about God. And what are we supposed to believe? And Jesus is going to tell us, here's what you need to think about God, and here this understanding of who God is is going to cause you to want to pray continually and not lose heart. And the first thing is, God is just. God is just. So in contrast to this judge who didn't fear God, God is God. <laughs> and God cannot violate his, his standard of justice. God always, always, always does what is right. 
No one. No one on the last day is going to be able to take their finger and put it in God's face and say, you were unjust. That was wrong of you to do. No one will be able to do that to God. Everything that he does is righteous and holy and just. Everything. This is what Abraham struggled with back in Genesis on on hearing the news that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember we studied that a long time ago. He wondered, God, how can you take the righteous and sweep them away, destroy them along with the wicked? And so he asks the question, God, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He's struggling with the justice of God. God, will you do what is right? And that's that's often the cry of our prayer, especially in the light of coming, the coming of Jesus. God, I don't see the rightness of what is going on. Are you going to do what is right? I don't I don't see the justice of the sin that is reigning on earth. And this is where we're at. This is where we live. So so we groan. We groan under the weight of of racism and sexism and classism in our world, and we cry out for some sort of justice to be done. Right. We're shaken by tragedy, by, by cancer, by, by pain. And we want God to make things right. Do what is right, God. We're broken. We're broken by murder. We're broken by death. We're broken by the persecution, the martyrdom of brothers and sisters in Christ. We're faced with, with things that don't make sense. Things that don't seem just. Things that are hard for us to understand that seem to frustrate our sense of of justice. That, that's the world that we live in. And so we come to God, and we come like this widow, and we want God to vindicate us. We want Him to sweep away the evil in the world, and we want justice to be done. And the encouragement that we are to find here is that God is just. And justice will finally and fully be done. He's going to hear our cries. He is going to do what is right because he always does. He will give justice. So we pray for justice in the now. We trust for justice in the future. We do it with complete confidence that God is just. So, so when you and I pray, when we pray, let's, let's hold the justice of God before our eyes. Let's hold it up and say, God, you will always do what is right. I believe that. And, and let's hold the justice of God before God's eyes and say, God, you are just. Please do what is right because you always do what is right. I believe you are just and you do all things right. So please bring justice in this situation. Bring what is right. But God is not only just, but God also has regard for us. God has regard for us. The judge in the parable cares nothing for the widow or for anyone else, just for himself. But God, God cares for us deeply. And we see it just in a simple little, just two words. Verse 7, will not God give justice to his elect? God will bring about justice for his elect, for his chosen ones. The doctrine of election that God has foreknown and predestined and chosen those who are going to be his children, it's a difficult one. And it's the source most often, most often in our conversations, it becomes one about arguments. But in Scripture, most often it's presented as a source of joy and, and of praise because it recognizes that if there's any judge that should completely ignore us, like this judge does, if there's any judge like that, it's, it's God. God should completely ignore us. We have nothing to come before Him with. It recognizes that we have nothing to cause God to love us. 
And so election is it rejoices in the fact that God has God has set his love and his affection upon us, not because of anything that we have done, not because we are deserving, not because we are worthy, but in the exact opposite, not even because we are able to come to him. We are completely unable to come to him, and he has chosen us in him. He has adopted us, he has made us his elect children, and he has regard, he has compassion for us, and we don't deserve any of it. I think some people struggle with that. Am I one of God's elect children? Maybe you ask that question. Am I, he says he's going to give justice for his elect. Well, how do I know? Well, do you believe in Jesus? Have you put your, your faith fully in him? Have you renounced any confidence in yourself and in your efforts? Have you repented and turned from your sins? Have you put your hope in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and, his, and not in the things that you can do? Are you submitting to, to Christ's lordship? If you are, then you are elect. You are a child of, of God, and God has saved you. The elect are elect not by works or by status, but by faith. By faith that fully trusts in what Christ has done to save us. And if we are, then, then we are, then God hears us. I was reminded again of Mephibosheth that Mark talked about a few Sundays ago. Well, a good number of Sundays ago now, I guess. But Mephibosheth, crippled man who, who was of the household of Israel's first king, King Saul. Saul, who was David's enemy, who sought to kill David. But after Saul dies, David ascends to the throne in Israel, and he seeks out Mephibosheth. Now, most of the time, a king would seek out Mephibosheth to kill him, because he was of the old line. But David says he wants to show kindness to the house of Saul. And so Mephibosheth is found, and he's brought into David's court, probably thinking he's a dead man. And he comes, and he falls on his face, and in 2 Samuel 9, he says, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. And yet David makes him a member of the royal household and blesses him. And we are all Mephibosheth. We all come before God on our faces and we are dead dogs. (laughs) But we have been chosen by God. We have been made a people for God's own possession. We are His elect. We are His, His children. And we enter into the throne room of God in prayer, and we come, we can come with, with confidence. We can come with confidence by the blood of Christ and in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, He is he's our elder brother. We can come into the throne room of God, of the King, like children of the King would come into the throne room of the King. How does the child of a king come into the throne room? Like any other kid comes to meet his dad. And we can come in with that kind of boldness because the Father loves us. He has regard for us. He wants to listen to us. Why do we not go to God in prayer? It is a mystery, isn't it? We're so prayerless. My hope is that the Spirit of God would open all of our eyes to see not only that that God is just, but that He has regard for us, that He loves us, that that He cares for us. He wants to hear from us. Let me give you one more thing that about God that should bolster our faith and cause it to, to overflow in this sort of ceaseless and persistent prayer, and it's this, that God will act with perfect timing. God will act with perfect timing. It, he says that here in, in positively and negatively. So, verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Question. Will he delay long over them? The implied answer is no. He's not going to delay long. And then the positive statement, I tell you, he will give justice to them. How? 
speedily. It's going to happen fast. So this widow had to ask over and over and over and over again. God says, I'm going to do it quickly. I'm going to do it speedily. Because when we want justice, you know, we want it yesterday, right? The only problem here is that my definition of quickly and speedily seems to be a lot different than God's definition of quickly and speedily. Because when I ask for justice, it doesn't seem to come quickly and, and speedily. It seems like injustice is still reigning in the world. It seems like the kingdom of God has not fully come yet. I think the point here more is that God's timing is is perfect. We have to remember that, that God's concept of time is, is much different than ours. We remember what, what Peter says, that the, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And so there is this, this sense in which what, what Jesus is saying is you need to, we need to have faith. And we need to trust God. Specifically, we need to trust God's timing. We need to trust that He is acting as quickly and as speedily as He needs to. That He's doing it in His perfect timing and God's timing is always, always right. So, so we persevere in prayer with that confidence. God, I believe that you will act when you're supposed to. And I'd like you to act right now. <laughs> that there's that tension that we're going to hold on to in prayer. God, bring justice now, but I trust your timing fully. We keep calling out to him, but we keep trusting that he knows what he's doing. And remember, the context of these verses is after the end of chapter 17, where we're talking about the coming of the kingdom. And we pray with full confidence that that Christ is going to return, that justice is going to reign over all the earth, that there will be a moment when that happens. We pray for God's kingdom to come. We long for justice and we wait for it patiently. We're like the martyrs of Revelation 6. They're crying out before God. Those that have been killed for their faith. They're crying out. And it says in verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 6, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They say, how long, God? We're waiting. Even, even, even these martyrs are waiting. God, when will justice happen? That's the cry of our heart so long. How long, God? How much longer do I have to wait for you to act in this situation? And what's the response? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, if there's something I don't understand, that's it, right? Why do, why do more people need to die, God, before you will bring justice? Why do there need to be more martyrs before you will set things right? I don't know, but God knows. And I have to trust that His timing is perfect. I don't fully understand God's timing, but I, I can trust that it's perfect. And if I trust that His timing is perfect, I will continue in prayer. I will be consistent, and I will be persistent. So God is just. God has regard for us. And God's timing is perfect. And in light of all of that, we should have faith. Faith that prays. Jesus then ends with a question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? When when Christ comes back, will His children be walking in faith? What kind of a faith is He looking for? What will that faith look like? I think that faith will look like constant prayer. 
If we truly have faith in God, it will look like constant prayer. It will look like the elect crying out to God day and night for justice. That's the phrase that he uses, day and night. He will give justice to his elect, those who cry out to him. How long? Day and night, constantly. That we're praying for the justice of God, for the glory of God, for the coming of the kingdom. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Faith is expressed in constant Prayer And Jesus is encouraging us to always pray. When He comes back, may He find us in constant prayer. And not only constant prayer, but also persistent prayer. The faith will look like persistent prayer. A kind of praying that doesn't give up easily. The judge is not an example of who God is, but the widow is an example of how we should pray. That we should pray over and over and over and over again. We are to persist in prayer. We are to ask God continually for justice. We're to be like Jacob. That even when our hip's out of joint, we hold on and say, bless me, God. We, we, we persist, we wrestle with God, and we say, I will not let go. As best I can tell, I don't have any statistics. I don't have any great evidence. But as best I can tell, there is a generation of Christians that is slowly passing off the face of this earth and into glory that knew how to always pray and not lose heart. I don't know if that's a function of just the older saints who grow in that, or if it's a function of a generation that that really believed in praying and in consistently praying. I, I don't fully know. I think about women like Nana Eva, who, who just was a woman of prayer, who was consistent and persistent. I think of my wife's Aunt Lucille, who was a missionary in Chile for about 50 years, and then in the last years of her life just spent time encouraging people in the faith and praying. And she would pray for us, and she'd tell us, I'm praying for you. And she passed away a couple years ago. And I've thought often, she's not praying for me in that same way now. I think about my grandparents who say they pray for me and for many others, and they say they do it every day. You know these folks, right? You know prayer warriors. You know people that have, have prayed consistently. Some you've known personally. Some you've, you've read about. And it's not just individuals, but there are churches. There are, are churches that gathered to pray. They knew how to spend an hour in prayer. Churches who prayed persistently about things and saw God answer. Churches that needed no other reason to gather than than to come and to together pour out their hearts before God. Churches that fasted, that prayed together for, for justice, for salvation in the world. And I think about these things and then I, I kind of look at my own life and I wonder if I've ever really prayed for anything in my life. With persistence? Have I ever had a day where I prayed consistently? Is there, is there anything that I've sought God for every single day other than forgiveness for my sins? And I look at our church, and I, I love our church, and I think we grow in prayer, we, and we, we, we do pray, and you might be tempted to say, well, we pray more than other churches, you know, it's one of those things, but there's, there's room for growth for us to, to, to pray, to consistently and fervently pray for for our church, for one another, for our neighborhood, for our world, to pray for justice, to pray for the coming of the kingdom. I don't know what that looks like. I kind of want to open it up as far as specific application. What's that going to look like for us individually? What's that going to look like for us as a church to be consistent and persistent 
in prayer. I want to talk about that tonight even as we have time before we pray. But, but brothers and sisters, I just see that there's sort of this mantle that is, is being left behind by, by saints. And it's, it's there. It's lying on the ground. It's been placed there by those who have, have gone before us. And we, and we have to take it up. And it's this mantle of consistent and persistent prayer. It's a mantle of faith. Prayer is an act of faith. So let's be people of faith. Let's be people who, who believe in the justice of God. Let's be people who, who believe that God is for us, that He has regard for us, that He loves us. Let's be people that believe in God's perfect timing. And when we believe all of those things, it's going to overflow in our lives in prayer. My hope is that when, when Christ returns, He will find us faithful. That's the question. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? I pray He does find faith on earth. And what it's going to look like is a bunch of Christians on their knees praying. Because that I, I can't think of any other solid expression of faith like prayer. May God make us a people that pray. When He returns, may He find us faithful. May He find us on our knees.